The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. It's a glorious psalm we look at today. You know, we finished um, Second Peter last week and we're going to spend some time in the psalms. We're also doing psalms on... Um, First Wednesday um, for that worship service, and Pastor Greg noted that there are a lot of psalms, so we won't take them all up. Uh, and by the way, First Wednesday won't be First Wednesday next month. It'll be Second Wednesday. So First Wednesday will be Second Wednesday next. Never mind. We'll let you know. We'll 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 fill you in on all of that when the time comes. I preached on on first Wednesday in January and March. I preached Psalm 1 in January and Psalm 2 in March. So uh, coming today, I just figured I'd stay in in order, keep on doing that order I was doing, although we won't won't necessarily do them completely uh, in order. Psalm 1 and 2 are really foundational psalms. I read somebody said... Psalm 1 and 2 are like the double doors that you open up to go into the Psalms. Um, Psalm 1 stressing that contrast between the righteous and the evil. And then Psalm 2, the reign of the Lord's anointed, uh, that war between uh, the, the world and Christ, even as he says, kiss the sun um, there. In Psalm chapter 2. And then Psalm 3 gets personal. Uh, describes a person who's in uh, great imminent danger. Uh, as a new day, a new morning dawns in that person's life. And, and that person we know is David, uh, a type of Christ, and his enemies. Psalm 3, just by way of introduction, Psalm 3 is uh, historically has been called a morning psalm, morning like early in the morning uh, psalm, uh, mainly because of verse 5. You see, I lay down and slept, I woke again. Um, a wonderful exclamation on God's ability to wake us up. I I lay down, I slept. I didn't have cardiac arrest during the night. I didn't go into kidney failure during the night. God woke me up the next day. God's in charge of those things, you know. And uh, so it has traditionally been called a morning psalm. Not necessarily in the sense just use those words. You think, well, that's not enough to call it a morning uh, psalm. But when you realize that this entire psalm it comes from a particular morning in David's life, a dangerous morning, a pivotal, pivotal morning for him. Um, then you realize calling it a morning psalm might not be such a bad idea. And Psalm 4, they're kind of, they, they go together as well, has been known as an evening psalm, mainly because of verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. So we have a morning psalm and an evening psalm. 
Um, <clears throat> you also see at the end of each stanza or verse in Psalm 3 the word Selah or Selah. Um, I was going to explain to you what that means, but we don't know what that means. And uh, we have no idea what that means, although it has been narrowed down to be some sort of musical notation. Uh, maybe a rest, maybe a crescendo. It's it some sort of musical uh, notation, possibly meaning stop, ponder those thoughts you just sang. Um, and that's the, the best we can do. We just don't know about that word Selah. Also, there's a heading. This is the first psalm with a heading. Um, there's that, well, there are several firsts in this particular uh, psalm. Uh, this is the uh, first psalm where the word psalm has occurred, a psalm of David, you see. And the introduction, mizmor, mizmor is the Hebrew word for that. It's a poem to be sung to musical accompaniment, much like we just did. Um, it's also the first psalm uh, to talk about David, a psalm of David being the author. And it's the first psalm to give us a historical setting. And all that comes in that heading. See that, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Um, that's the title. It's one of 14 different psalms that are linked to some historical event all in the life of David. Psalm 51 is one of those that Josh preached a couple Wednesday nights ago, um, again about David, when David says, have mercy on me. We'll look at that in a minute. Also, in the Hebrew Bible, they consider that a verse. So if you get, if you go, we call the Old Testament the Hebrew Bible, but if you go get an official Hebrew Bible, the, for those Psalms that have uh, headings, um, the verse numbers are different from your verse numbers. In the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 3 has nine verses. Uh, in our Bible, it has eight, just so you'll know. Um, and it is Scripture. Those headings are Scripture. That's not something. Uh, at the top of your Psalm 3, your uh, Bible may say, Save me, O God, if you have an ESV. That's, I'm, I'm sorry, this is not a class on Bible, but um, we'll, just for a second. Uh, save me, O God. The, the translators put that heading in there. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to be put in Scripture. And that's what it is. In fact, the New Testament even affirms that. Mark 12, um, Acts 2, or a couple places where we get the affirmation in the New Testament that these headings are Scripture itself. They believe them to be the Word of God and true. So there you have all the firsts in Psalm 3. I'll break it up into three sections. Some people break it up into four. I'll break it up into three. And first we have the believer's crisis, the believer's confidence, and the believer's 
conviction might not be a bad thing that we're talking about this psalm on Father's Day because we'll we'll look at a father. Uh, more importantly, we'll look at a heavenly father. Uh, first, the believer's crisis. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Uh, David's in a crisis. It's crisis mode for David. The heading has already told us that when it says, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And we see that story in Second Samuel. We're going to actually look at that some uh, throughout this first part. But ultimately, we see it from uh, chapter 15 on in Second Samuel, but ultimately it comes from chapter 12 in Second Samuel. And it's, it's Second Samuel 12 where God sends Nathan to David. And he reveals to David his sin and the evil of his sin and his sin with Bathsheba, birthing a child that dies. His sin to have Bathsheba's husband killed. All that went along with that. And it's at that point when, when, when Nathan reveals to David his sin, he sees how utterly sinful he really is. And that's where we get Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. Confesses his sin. We believe that's when he wrote that Psalm 51. But we also see that regardless of him saying, have mercy on me, O God, seeking forgiveness, supposedly receiving forgiveness, there are still consequences for his sin. And that's what following through the rest of Second Samuel, we see the consequences of, of that sin in his life. It reminds me of the story of a mother who's explaining to her five-year-old son that if he chose, made the decision to disobey her, that that child would have to live with the consequences. That little boy says, Oh, Mommy! Please don't make me go to live with the consequences. I want to live with you. But we do, don't we? We do have to go live with the consequences, the choices we've made in our lives. True Bible characters, familiar Bible characters, godly Bible characters, almost all the Bible characters. And even this one that Scripture calls a man after God's own heart. What a dysfunctional family. I, you, you have a dysfunctional... We won't have volunteers, but you have a dysfunctional... Well, all our families are dysfunctional, just on different levels. But this one's a mess. David had a son, Amnon, who rapes his sister, Tamar. As a result of that, Absalom and burning anger kills his brother, Amnon. And then it went downhill from there. And that's the story he's referring to in Psalm 3. Let's look at that a little bit also in Second Samuel 15. Verses 7 and 8, At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, 
please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And David let him go. And as he let him go, his son go, Absalom, a conspiracy begins. Verse 12. While Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, uh, the Gelanite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo. The conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. See, Absalom was like the, he was like the, the, the Tom Brady of the crowd. He was, he was, he, he, he was the quarterback of the, he, he was the, he was the six foot five cut in shape. He was that guy. We know that from the chapter before, Second Samuel 14. Now in all Israel, there was, no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. He was king material. All those Jerusalem Jewish girls wanted him. And notice, though, that the opponents of David are many. Uh, verse 1, oh, how many are my foes. Verse 2, many are saying of my soul. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. The enemies are increasing. David's opponents are increasing. Same situation in, in 2 Samuel 15:13. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And at that point, David flees Jerusalem, running from his own son in disgrace. And the attitude of his opponents is that uh, he forfeited all rights that he had to be the hope of Israel. He had forfeited all rights that he had to even hope for God to save him from this mess. Then one nasty guy shows up, Shimei, curses David. Chapter 16, verse 8, The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And he even says at that time when Shimei is speaking to him that, that they're throwing rocks and dirt at David. And he had, he had his own secret service. I mean, he was king. He had his own secret service. And the Bible says that some were on the right and some were on his left just to take the rocks and the dirt so that he wouldn't have to. Then it comes to a head, Ahithophel, Chapter 17, verse 1, said to Absalom, 
Let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. So in short, what we have is David's handling, David's in the capital handling government affairs. Absalom steals the heart of the people and he raises up a rebellion against his father. And the revolt revolt was, was, was so sudden that David just had to pick up and leave quickly. He had no option to leave the capital. He didn't have, he didn't have time to gather up his troops and, and to be able to fight this thing. So he took off and he crossed the Kidron Valley and he made his way up in grief. He made his way up to the Mount of Olives, temporary safety in the desert. The text says in Second Samuel that he, he went weeping and barefoot, his head covered in sorrow. What, who does that remind you of going across the Kidron Valley that night up to the Mount of Olives in sorrow? Yeah, you get it. David's a type of Christ. The time he's being loudly and openly cursed by Shimei and others. You get what you deserve, David. You're a man of blood. Can you identify with that? Certainly some of you can. And not on that level. Maybe you don't have a military battle coming up. You don't have a military battle facing you when you woke up this morning. But you're facing a battle. Things might not be good at work. Seems like open warfare where you work. Everybody's trying to defeat everybody else. It's cutthroat. Rumors and gossip and lying and on and on and on. How do godly people survive in an environment like that? You're not facing thousands of enemies like David was. But how many enemies does it take to make your life miserable? I'm just saying one. And I could call out names, but I won't. None here today. One's enough. If they're determined enough to make your life miserable, and you probably have more than that, especially if you're in a leadership position. Worse than that, you're not being attacked today by soldiers that are commanded by your son. But your son may hate you or your daughter or at least hate what you stand for. Or maybe a spouse has betrayed you. You thought that spouse was on your side. But it appears that wasn't the case. It could be that your enemy is saying, he or she is, you've made too many mistakes, it's all wrong, there's no salvation for you, you just need to go. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. I don't think they're saying that God can't save you. What I believe they're saying is that God can save you, but he won't because you're so evil, because you're cursed. You're a man of blood. You aren't fit to be king. We got somebody better. Charles Spurgeon said, It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear 
that there is no help for us in God. Let me read that whole quote. We don't have it on the screen. Leave that sentence up there, Ben. If all trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, all the crosses which arise from the earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. You may feel that way in this cutthroat world we live in. You may feel that way when life falls apart. So where do you turn when life turns upside down? Where do you turn when they're out there taunting you? Where do you turn when those closest to you turn against Are those you thought closest to you turn against you? The oppression of the enemy... It's felt in the multitude of trials that tend to trouble us in our daily lives. It's not on the screen. Spurgeon said, troubles come in flocks. (laughs) Troubles come in flocks. Where do you turn? Well, David knew. The believer's confidence. Verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. Now, that's a pretty abrupt turnaround. My life's falling apart in one verse, and you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Why such a turnaround? What I mentioned earlier before... Be thou my vision. He's turned his attention from his enemies to God. James Boyce said, When a believer gazes too long at his enemies, the force arrayed against him seems to grow in size until it appears to be overwhelming. But when he turns his thoughts to God, God is seen as his true great stature, and the enemies shrink to manageable proportions. I remember those of you who took experience in God years ago, Henry Blackaby said, you know, when you're standing in the middle of the circumstance, all you can see is the circumstance. It's so vital that we learn to step out of the circumstance and see it from God's perspective. Is that right, Al? Did I say that right? I know Al took that course. Many of you others did, I'm sure. And I'd like to take this just even a further step, not dealing just with people. Some of us will say, I suffer from anxiety, or I I suffer from fear of man, or I suffer from some addictive personality, or, or something else that you find on the list of things. All of those things are really sin, quite possibly just the consequence of sin. But the same principle is true. When you focus on the sin, when you focus on the trial, when you focus on the trouble, it does nothing but get bigger and bigger and bigger and bring you down. When you focus on the God who is the shield about you, those things take their place. 
and get smaller. The shield that can protect you from those things that try to bring you down in defeat. The shield will protect you. Quickly, David says of this awful morning, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Nobody else matters. Even if the entire world is against me, the one closest to me is the only one that matters, and the only one that matters is the one almighty God. Nobody else matters. Even if everything is against me. And as soon as David turns his thoughts to God, he's got those first two verses where it's the end of the world for him. As soon as he turns his thoughts to God, he's reminded how, how strong God is, how puny his enemies are, standing next to God. Real trust comes from a true understanding of the resources that we have in Christ. Which is why the Word is so important to us. It's so important that we study it all because that's where we learn where those resources are. Real trust comes from an understanding of the resources we have in God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So he tells us three things about God. God is a shield around him. God's been a shield for David in earlier occasions. You know his story. And God would prove himself that way again. And he didn't make this up. Back in Genesis 15, verse 1, we read, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. He knew Who his shield was. God told Abraham he was. And David had used a shield in warfare. You can think when the rocks are being thrown at him, when the dirt's being thrown at him, he had, the God, he had men on his left and men on his right protecting him. He knew what a shield was. He'd used a shield in battle before. He'd used a shield for protection. He'd used a shield for defense. That's why he compared God to that shield. The thought was that God is protection, not just protection from a shield out, held out in front of him, but protection all the way around him because Absalom and the rest of his soldiers were coming after him. He caused it as the consequences of his sin, but he knew God was his shield. As well. Perfect safety for us. Perfect safety for believers from the multitude of trials that come our way, the fiery darts that the enemy throws at us that we read about in Ephesians chapter 6. God has provided armor for his believing people protection from the fiery darts. 
that come our way. God is a shield. Second thing he said, God would lift up his head. Even if it's severely cast down, sin beats us down. Shame beats us down. God always lifts us up. We can expect God to do that for us. We can expect God to be the protection. We can also expect Him to lift our heads and our shame, the lifter of our head. Remember I read, He left Jerusalem defeated. He left Jerusalem dejected. He left Jerusalem despondent. He left Jerusalem depressed, hung his head in shame. Second Samuel 15.30, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went, weeping as they went. He hung his head in shame, but confident that God would lift up his face. Like that little boy misbehaved, and his dad found out that he misbehaved. He said, Frank, come here, I need to talk to you. Frank comes with his head bowed. He grabs his chin and picks it up. Let's talk about this. He lifts up his head. Let's deal with this. I'm on your side. How wonderful it is to know that even though you may be humiliated by insults and curses, the opinions of other people, Satan himself, God can and will lift up our heads in victory so that we can see where we're going. We lift our heads up in shame. He brings our heads up in honor. We lift our heads up in, 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 in David's case, we lift our heads up in sorrow. He brings our heads up in joy. He's a shield. He lifts up our head and he answers the psalmist cries. God always answers. Maybe not at once. Maybe not always as we wish. But he always answers. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord And he answered me from his holy hill. Uh, Matthew Henry said, Care and grief, the grief, the sorrow, those things do us good when they engage us to pray to God. The purpose of every trial in your life is to point you to your Father. To put you on your knees, I cried aloud, God hears. Spurgeon said, talking about crying aloud, silent prayers are heard. Surely silent prayers are heard. Yes, but good men often find that even in secret, they pray better aloud than they do when they utter no vocal sound. And he answers from his holy hill. That's a, that's a synonym, really, for the Temple Mount. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, wherever it's used. He answered from his holy hill. It, we see that also in uh, Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my 
holy hill. And there's a reference to that in Second Samuel as well. And Abiatar came up, chapter 15, verse 24. And behold, Zadok, and came also with all the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. They're leaving. They're fleeing. Uh, David's got people fleeing. His people, his few people, fleeing Jerusalem. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. That's the holy hill. If he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Carry it back to the holy hill. So if I return, I'll see it. Spurgeon said, we need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. David prays, and God answers with the promise of salvation. When you're being attacked, when life's falling apart, you're being attacked. People are casting shame on you. It's important. I encourage you to say aloud, I know my God. That's the believer's confidence. And then lastly, we see the believer's conviction. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people, Selah. Do you have trouble sleeping? you have trouble sleeping when you've got something weighing on your mind? Or is it just me? Do you have trouble sleeping when you're in a battle? This is a beautiful picture. Someone's trust in God because what? I lay down and slept. Think what he's... How many are my foes? They're rising up against me. Many are saying in my soul, there's no salvation in my God. So I lay down and slept. Frank wouldn't have. And that's to my shame. Beautiful picture of one so trusting in God. He's able to sleep soundly when those around him are seeking to destroy him and they're on the way. Leupold in his commentary said, The high point of faith reached by this psalm. So this is how he felt the next morning. That's why it's called a morning song. This is how he felt the next morning. Went to sleep trusting God. Awakened with the events of yesterday in his mind. And today firmly in the hands of God. I want to be that person yesterday. Those events were awful. Today's in God's hands. 
I slept well. I had a restful sleep, not afraid to face what this new day might hold. I will not fear the thousands seeking to destroy me. Or whatever it is in your case, you can name it. You know what it is in your case. So, arise, O Lord. God, you go to battle for me. Well, ultimately, that story ends. God caused Absalom to listen to bad advice, failed to defeat his father. At the time, his father was absolutely the most vulnerable. Then when the battle did happen, David was able to gather enough troops and prepare for it, and his military had a great victory. 20,000 men were killed, including his son Absalom. And that final verse contains the testimonial. Salvation comes from the Lord. Followed by a blessing to his people. I found that interesting. We don't have enough time to deal with it. He spends the entire psalm talking about himself and what he's going through in his current situation. And finally, in the end, in the final few words, he addresses the truth that David's life was for the people of God. Talks about himself, all he's going through, the, the whole thing. Your blessing be on your people. God saved him for the people. Even as David's a type of Christ in this psalm, escaped his enemies, walked through the Kidron Valley, up to the Mount of Olives, just as Jesus did. It's interesting to note this contrast. In Psalm 3, it's about God saving the king and killing or destroying his enemies. In the gospel, God kills King Jesus so that he might save his enemies, even you and me. For we once were enemies of God. Steve Lawson says, It's a hymn of individual lament written to paint a clear picture of what triumphant faith looks like when it's tested by the fires of adversity. I suspect some of you came here today not with the feeling that you wanted to sing that glorious hallelujah, hallelujah, Jesus Christ is King. Hallelujah, Lamb of God, sinners sing. You were in the mood to sing songs that were joyful. I suspect you came today and you weren't even in the mood to have that greeting where everybody walks around and carries on conversations instead of greets each other. I suspect some of you came in today thinking about the attacks that had come your way in the last week. You weren't all giddy about coming to worship today. Life's burdens and attacks were getting to you. Stop. Don't focus on the enemy. Focus on your Heavenly Father. Salvation comes from the Lord. 
God's the author of salvation from beginning to end. If you were not, nobody would be saved. James Boyce says, salvation is of the Lord. But if that is true, if God has saved you in this great manner of salvation, why should you tremble before the lesser physical dangers of this life, however imposing and frightful they may seem? Salvation belongs to the Lord. So failure is not the last word. Right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. So our problems are not the final word. Right? Salvation comes from the Lord. So loneliness is not the final word. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So guilt and shame are not the last words. You can rejoice in that. It's the utter truth of Scripture. Salvation belongs to the Lord, so rest in the Lord. Let Him be your glory. Let Him be the lifter of your head. Let Him do in you what will be for your best. Salvation belongs to the Lord, so seek His presence. Even if the circumstances of life has your head spinning and, 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 and you're thinking you can't focus on anything else. Rest in the Lord. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Praise and glory, wisdom and thanks, honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. You should triumph By faith in God, triumph over all that's coming your way. By faith in God, even as David did. You think about that. Let's pray. We'll close by singing a hymn this morning. If during that hymn you have questions about the message this morning, some of the truths that were proclaimed in this message. If there are things going on in your life, the attacks coming your way, burdens weighing you down, you need somebody to pray with. During this closing hymn, you make your way to the back. Pastor Greg and others will be back there to receive you to pray with you, to spend time with you. You do that. The crowd this size, some of you are suffering. Some of you are struggling with those very things. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Have somebody pray with you about it as we sing in a minute. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You that we have a shield We have protection in whatever comes our way. Teach us to trust more and more each day. And thank you for the assurance that comes with these truths. To God be the glory. Amen.